You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Well, folks, it is another week at Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall and Bride Ministries International. In a couple weeks, you get to look forward to something. It is called a brand new website. We're very excited about this project. We've been working on it for a few months now, and a man, oh man, is it looking sleek and sharp. And so we can't wait to present it to all of you that are connected with us. It's just going to be much easier on the eyes (laughs) when you um, visit us bridemovement.com. Now, I want to let you know, looking forward to 2020, what's going to be going on at Bride Ministries International, because there is a lot. You know, next year, we are going to be doing our DID Coach Mentorship Program. Now, you can't apply for that anymore because applications have been closed. Everyone that is going to be going through that program has been selected and is right now preparing for that program. Uh, But, What's going to happen next year is that we are going to release a lot more coaches. And, 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 and the thing is, there's so many of you that reach out, and I, I, I get hammered all the time. Daniel, I need your help. Daniel, nobody understands me. Daniel, please, how can I? And, 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 and frankly, I really, it hurts me to use the word I can't, uh, no, and I just don't have any availability and so we are training people to minister the way that I minister. And, and, and that's going to happen throughout the course of next year. By the end of next year, we as a platform are going to be able to offer such an abundance of help, uh, so, so much more. And uh, so um, <clears throat> look forward to that. Now, uh, as as we build up to that, we, we are also branching out because we are now be- beginning to believe God. And um, I have mentioned many times we have a vision for survivor and transitional housing, uh, primarily focused on, you know, survivors of satanic ritual abuse and um, other mind control backgrounds. But... Uh, we would probably extend this somewhat into the trafficking arena as well because all of those worlds blur. And and uh, at this point, we are at the stage where we're just believing God. We are now officially believing God for land. And we have a strategy in the works for actually building affordable housing. But the first step that we need is land. And so we are... Believing God for land in the North Dallas area, um, we want to encourage those of you that have been, you know, really tracking with us to to believe God with us. And, you know, um, there are several ways this is going to happen. One, you guys are going to support us and we're going to buy it and we're going to buy it cash because this is a debt free ministry and I do not take out loans. I, if, if, if I'm going to do it, it's going to be cash. So. We're going to have the cash reserves raised up front, or someone's going to give us the land. <laughs> Either way, we're going to move. So uh, I, I want to encourage those of you that have been supporting us. You know, uh, we are really trying to go to the next level in what we are available to help people with, uh, moving past just resources, right? Like prayers and uh, coaching opportunities and um, teachings that make stuff make sense um, and into actual uh, real you know, 
3D world help. So, so thank you for those of you that have been sewing into us all this time. We're so appreciative, but we are driving. We are driving, and I want to invite those of you that believe that uh, God is going to do what he said he would do um, to start sewing into us if, if you haven't, um, because we want to build kingdom. With that said, uh, we're going to be interviewing another survivor today, and uh, you met her once. Her name is Sharice, and her story was mind-blowing. Well, she is back to continue talking today. I want to uh, put out a trigger warning. Her story is heavy, it's deep, and it's detailed. And so if uh, you are with little children or you are concerned about your own uh, state, um, psychologically or otherwise, you, you, you may want to listen to this program with caution. Now, ha- having said that, we're, we're, we're going to get right to it. If you have not gotten our book, Advanced Prayers That Shake Heaven and Earth, it is available everywhere. Um, if you want the paperback, you uh, can get it right from our website. Amazon has not stocked the paperback yet, but it is coming soon. Um, for them and others, it'll be distributed in other places, but it is available at our website, bridemovement.com, as an ebook and as a paperback. So please um, consider leaving a review if you have read it and been blessed by any of the prayers in it. Um, and we, we send off an email, and every week when we send off our email updates, you know, there is a link in there to leave a review at Amazon because. Your review is someone else's blessing. With that said, we're going to get right to the program. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Well, folks, we are back with another week of Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall, and I am very excited to have back on as my guest, Sharice. And she has joined me once before and talked about the horrific programming she received at the hands of Freemasons. And, well, as many of you know, In one podcast, it is impossible to tell the whole story, to break down everything. And and, and I'll tell you what, um, I've been looking forward to this round two uh, since recording the first one. Sharice is a survivor of programming through the Freemasonry Lodge, but through that, satanic ritual abuse has definitely been part of her history. Um, And... You know, she is just a shining example of the prevailing power of Jesus Christ. And Sharice, I just want to thank you for coming back on the program. Thank you, Dan. Sharice, we are going to get into some more deep things today, but I know that you wanted to begin this program by addressing survivors. And so... Um, I just want to go ahead and open the floor and let you begin there. Thank you. I, I want to give um, honor to all of the survivors. Um, I, I am typically a very private person. This is not something that I would do normally coming on a podcast like this, but the Lord 
instructed me to do it. And also for all of my clients that I work with that are survivors that have been through far worse things than I ever have. And at this time, they do not have a voice because they're not in a safe place. And they've had their entire families were Satanists, were in the cult, and were harming them. And so if I can speak out on their behalf in some way, then, then that's a good thing. I, I know with um, Veterans Day coming up that, that we give a lot of honor and respect to our veterans and our military, and that is a very good thing, and we should do that. I, I personally long to see the day when we give that type of honor and respect to our survivors, because all over the country there are parades held for uh, veterans, and we honor them for what they endured, what they went through. Um, people stand up and and show respect to them. And it is my hope one day we can do that for the survivors because they have been to hell and back. They have suffered, many of them, worse than much of our military. Um, and I just want to honor them and to tell them that uh, they are my heroes because I know I know what it takes to survive. I know that they did the very best they could in order to survive. And I just really want to honor them and bless them and encourage them in that. Um, mm -hmm. I, as, I asked the Lord to give me justice for the things that were done to me and to give me recompense. I've asked him that many, many times. And as part of my justice and recompense, the Lord ha has taken me to heaven on a number of occasions, and he has let me see many things. One of the, of the rooms the Lord took me in in heaven, it, it was actually the room of tears. And there were beautiful, um, beautiful golden containers that were covered in jewels. And I, I watched as angels and scribes would take each tear we cried, and they would record each one in a book, and they would weigh it on a scale. And I've... I've watched them take objects that our tears had soaked into. They have taken dirt, they have taken clothing, and they held them and cradled them as though they were precious and sacred, as though they were infants. And they extracted each tear out of all of those things and they put them on the scale. So uh, many of these survivors you are deserving of justice and of recompense for the things that have happened to you. And I just encourage you to ask the Lord for that. Another thing that they also did with those tears 
is they put them on a never, another scale and they weighed them in judgment against the people who did these horrific things to us. And so there's going to be coming a time when each and every tear we cried out of pain and torture, those people who did that to us are going to have to pay for that. And they, they won't get away with that. And those tears against them were also recorded in another book. So I just, I just want to encourage any survivors that your tears and your pain have not been wasted, that they have, have been recorded. Um, I, I'd also like to speak about, about trauma memories because I've, I've had so many people tell me if I do talk about trauma memories that perhaps I'm not remembering it correctly, perhaps, you know, under, under the drugs and hypnosis, things were distorted and, and there's always a little bit of distortion with the drugs, but the trauma memories are stored in a different part of the brain than other memories and they are stored just as they happen. And when they come up, we are remembering them just as they happen. I think some of the worst pain a survivor can go through is to tell somebody what happened to them and have that person tell them that they don't believe them. That, that has happened to me. It's, it's a very hard and difficult thing to actually open yourself up to someone and to tell them what has gone on. And then for them to say that they don't believe you is almost worse the pain of the original trauma. I know when, when I was being trained for um, deliverance ministry, Kay Tolman and, and, and Sharon Krause always used to tell me to ask the clients if they started remembering something, what if this memory is true? What if it's true? What would that mean to you? How, how would that change you? And I just encourage people that are having memories to just say, okay, what if this is true? How do I go on from here? I think, um, well, I know the Lord had told me when I started remembering many things, he said, you have to suspend your, your idea of reality, of what you think can and cannot happen in the spiritual realm because many things can and do happen every day and they are beyond comprehension um, and if you try to look at it logically you're you're going to miss it and so i just encourage people to let those trauma memories come up i i believe that the actual gift of remembering is is truly a gift from from god and that that is one thing that the enemy does not want survivors especially to to remember and um, i I know when when I first started my own journey in healing and I was working with Kay Tolman and Sharon Prouse and um, Sharon broke a programming in me the very first programming she had broke was remember not to remember mm. And as soon 
as that was broken, it's like a veil was lifted. And, and even though these memories were horrific and they often involved people that were very close to me that I wanted to believe were, were good people, it, it was still a gift. And um, I, I want to encourage survivors to, to really pay attention to whatever dreams you're having because when I was remembering, about 90 to 95% of all of my dreams were actually trauma memories. And I would, I would have a notebook on my nightstand and I would, I would write all of them down. And I just, I just want to encourage parents out there if you're having a child that is having a lot of nightmares, that is not normal. Nightmares are not a normal part of growing up. If your child is having a nightmare, they have an open door to the enemy in their life, or the enemy is coming in and attacking them directly, and that that needs to be stopped. I want to um, just say a few things. You brought up a lot of really amazing points already, and it, you know, just coming back to what you said about remembering and you know one of the things i'm i'm just you know I, I i like to apply terminology to things to bring it to a discussion where everyone can you know talk about something and know that they're talking about the same thing and one of the terms i've been applying more recently is something i call the false reality overlay or fro for short and um <laughs> The, the, the false reality overlay is basically the world we're told we live in, where normal people are born to normal parents and the spirit world is weird zone and something that only occurs in fantasy books and science fiction movies. And, um, you know, you just go about your merry way. And if you have an experience that's religious, it's because you had communion at the communion table you know, and uh, you go to uh, heaven when you die. And um, that's because, you know, you don't encounter the spirit world until you're dead. But, well, you know, we're just going to be very 3D in our thinking. And, 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 and so you have teams of psychiatrists and psychologists that have been trained to medicate anything that presents differently than this. And, and the problem is that uh, people are gauging and we're literally trained from young childhood to gauge our ability to base ourselves in reality against a false reality overlay. So unless our reality looks like what we are told it should look like, which is the fiction, we are crazy and we are drugged. So there are some people that are by nature of whatever's going on with them locked out of the spirit world completely. They're just shut down. So with that, population at play in the world there's an additional evidence because well they were not going to experience what other people did and so survivors are essentially being put into this forced um sub subjugation where it's like either i have to dissociate from my truth in order to not be deemed as crazy or I can just try to accept my truth all the way into the psychiatric ward where they're going to drug me until I no longer remember what my first name is. And so this is what's happened 
to a lot of people. And the, 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 the fundamental problem is that everything is being measured against the, <laughs> so it's the wrong plumb line. This false reality overlay is complete fiction. It's like, no, there are craft and they do abduct people. No, there, there are reptiles and they do live underground. No, there is a hollow earth. No, they do have a Nazi base in Antarctica. And there are people who have parts that work there. Yeah, they've been cloning humans for decades and you might have some. <laughs> and it's like, you know, that's the reality. That's literally the world we live in. And yet people are still struggling because their memories are based in reality, Cherise. The reality is the memories, but, but, but they can't accept it. And then not only is the false reality there as a reinforcement, there was the programming. Remember to forget the right to remain silent. Other programs that have official names because they've used them over and over again. And it's, it, it's sad, you know, and added to all of that, and I love the way that you brought this up. There's a lot of people that think that their memories are nothing more than a curse, that their memories are the reason why God failed them, they're worthless, and they don't, they don't want their memories. Uh, but you said that memories are a gift. And that, I think, is a very mature perspective. That's some perspective that has come from a journey. But anyway, I'm going to turn it back over to you. I just wanted to highlight a few things. Thanks well, th for bringing it up. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. It, yes, our, our memories of, of survivors, the Lord is going to be using our memories against the enemy to bring the enemy down in certain areas. Each survivor out there is a warrior. They are an unseen warrior. They are an arrow in the hand of God. And God is going to shoot those arrows at the foundations of this evil. Come on. And it's going to start, start to crumble. Um, I just encourage every, every survivor to take those memories and to use them as arrows and to fire them back at the enemy because you have knowledge of the enemy that many people don't possess. And we need to start being proactive and aggressive and, and firing back because we are not victims. We are overcomers. Come on. We are soldiers. We are soldiers. We are warriors. We have fought more heinous wars than anyone can ever imagine. We have died. We have been resurrected. <laughs> and, and we are here. Um, I, I, I'd also like to mention, too, what goes on in the spiritual realm whenever someone is hurt in this manner is that there are many placards many signs that are placed in the spiritual realm above us that, that say uh, rape, abuse, torture. And, and many times when a person encounters somebody that is very demonized, those demons see those placards that are above us and then they take advantage of that. That's like a, it's like a magnet to to draw people to us to um, continue that, that violence against us. 
but those placards can be broken very easily in the spiritual realm, and I encourage everyone to do that. I I believe that I had had many of those placards above me in the spiritual realm. I could not understand why everywhere I went, people would would come out and try to rape and molest me. I would go into a store. I mean, in in public places, strangers would would come out and do these things, and. And one of my um, memories is, is when I was six years old, uh, we lived in a small town. We went to a Baptist church and we had potlucks. And I remember the, um, everybody was in the basement of the Baptist church having a potluck and I needed to, to use the restroom. And I had walked upstairs and it was down a long, long hall. Well, these two, um, they, they were teenagers, boys uh, at the church. They were waiting upstairs. And as I walked down the hall, one of them grabbed me, put his hand over my mouth, and they dragged me into an unused Sunday school room. And they proceeded to um, rape and torture me. I, I was trying to scream, although at the same time in my mind, I thought, if I scream, if I make noise, my parents are going to hear it, and they're going to beat me. And I feared my parents worse than I feared what was going on to me. And so, and so one of them placed his uh, hand um, over my nose and mouth. I couldn't breathe. And um, after the second, second one raped me, I died. And um, they knew that they had killed me. And I remember standing next to my body looking at it. And I could hear their conversations. They were panicked. They said, we got to get out of here. They, they ran. Uh, instantly, I could see my two angels standing next to me. And Jesus was with me. And he... He got down on the floor next to me. He cradled me in his arms and he cried. He cried. And um, I could tell he was very, very broken. I, I've had many, many people ask me, why didn't he stop it? If you are sold to someone, if the enemy has a legal right to you, Jesus cannot come in and those legal rights that the enemy has to you. But my two angels were there and Jesus breathed on me and he said, it's not time for you to go. I, I have a plan for you. I need you to go back. And I remember all of a sudden I woke up and I was in horrible pain and I was all alone that point I couldn't, couldn't see uh, Jesus and my angels. I had died. My life had come back into me. I have no doubt if Jesus had not been there, I, I would not be here this day. And I, I, I tried getting dressed. I was shaking so hard. My uh, pelvis was dislocated in, in uh, two places. My legs would not function. 
I had to actually crawl on my stomach using my elbows. And I remember thinking, I've, I, I've got to get to the bathroom. I have to lock myself in there. Well, it, it was an old church. I finally made it into the bathroom, but it, it had one of those hook locks. And I couldn't stand up. I, I couldn't reach it. And the absolute fear and terror, because they had threatened to, to come back to hurt me, to hurt my sister, to kill us. And I knew I wasn't safe, and I was pushing up against that door, sitting on the floor, pushing up against the door as hard as I could. I tried over and over again, trying to lock the door so I would have a safe place. I, I couldn't get it locked. I, I crawled over to the toilet, and I passed out. I, I was able to um, get a bunch of toilet paper and wad it up and catch, catch the blood flow. I, I, I had blood down down to my ankles. I passed out again on the floor. I woke up. I knew that um, I did not have a safe place. I knew I could not tell my parents because I would be beat because it was my fault. And so I um, crawled using my elbows. I crawled down the hall into the sanctuary. And the only place I could think of to hide was under the pulpit it was closed in on three sides and I, I crawled up the steps I, I, I got into the pulpit and I hit there and and my best friend at the time he he was the pastor's son he was about a year older than, than me he came looking for me and he found me and he he told my parents my parents were very angry my mom told me I was faking I had blood down to my shoes. I couldn't walk. My dad had to carry me out to the car. He was terribly embarrassed. And, and when I got home, I had enough memory at that time that I told them that the men had hurt me. My dad slapped me across the face. He said I was a liar. He said, how dare you say awful things about those young men. He said, from now on, I want you to be extra nice to those men. Every time you see them, you have to smile and be extra nice and don't ever talk about this again. And so um, the next time I went back to um, church, I saw them and I just remember dying inside as I forced a smile. And of course, they took my smile as an invitation, and they um, continued to abuse me for um, quite a while at church. And um, that, that is the first time I actually remember dying. I, I remember dying when I was about eight. I was taken at night. And I, I was taken to somebody's house. I remember all of the curtains were shut. I walked in, and, I, and there were 14 people in the house. They had a black round cloth on the floor. They had candles all around it. They held, stripped me naked, held me on the floor. And for hours, they proceeded to rape me and torture me in a 
in very heinous ways. And they would tell me that um, I liked it. And they would make me repeat those words that I wanted more and that um, it was bad and only these kind of things only happened to um, bad girls. I ended up passing out. I, I came to literally as they shoved me out of the car early in the morning. I tried crawling on the gravel to my house, I passed out. I uh, woke up again. I, I had, had made it in. We had a, a laundry room. It, it was like a back door to the house that had gone into the laundry room. And I, I had left the door unlocked when I had left. And I went in and I would always dig through the dirty laundry trying to find the darkest towel I could because I couldn't leave any trace. I, I would clean myself up. I, I was... There was blood and blood clots pouring from me. I started vomiting. We had a wash basin by the washer and dryer. I grabbed onto the wash basin and I was trying to, to vomit in it. I always had to clean up all my mess. I passed out as I was vomiting. I hit my chin on the wash basin, bit, bit my tongue. And I remember laying there on the floor just before I passed out praying that God would give me a different family. Mm. Just, I, I, I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be like other children that could run and play and not have fear. And I used to pray that I would go to sleep and not wake up. I finally passed out. I actually stopped breathing and I died. When I came to, I was standing next to my body and my two angels were laying on top of me, trying to keep me warm. And I saw a light and I looked and Jesus walked in. And he picked me up and he held me. He actually sat on the floor with his back up against the dryer. And he was holding me. And again, he told me, he said, it's not your time. It's not your time to go. And I remember falling asleep with my head against his chest. And I felt at peace. The next morning I woke up, they must have carried me to, to my bed and they actually laid a dark towel underneath me. Um, and I remember as I was passing out, I, I could watch parts of me leave my body. And I remember I was so happy for them. I, I had no idea that it was astraling. I had no idea what they were doing, but I knew parts of me were being free. And so I would try to send as many as I could so that they would be away and they could be free. I... I remember the third time I, I died. And again, I believe that this had to do with some placard in the spiritual realm above me that said, said, rate me, abuse me. But um, 
we we lived in the country and and we had I guess a little creek behind our house and I used to like to go out there and and play in the water and and, and play in the clay and I remember these two men came I don't know if they were neighbors or what but um they they started really frightening me and um and one of them actually started undressing and so i had a little embankment up to our house and i jumped up the embankment and they grabbed my foot and they pulled me back down and i started fighting now i was instructed never to fight back so i was proud of myself that i was fighting back because i was fighting with everything i had well that that made them so mad that they took me over to the to the water and they held my head under the water. I remember fighting for um, breath. I fought and I fought and then all of a sudden I was at complete peace and I didn't I didn't care anymore and I could see a light under the water and I remember looking with my eyes at this beautiful beautiful light. I couldn't figure out what it was. Well, I was also standing next to my body watching what was going on and they were screaming you've killed her you've killed her and they and they rolled me over and my face was really dark and i i don't understand all that happens to a person when they drown but my face was very dark and my tongue looked unusually large and it was hanging out out the side of my mouth but the part of me that was standing next to my dead body watching this I, I saw a light behind me and and it was my two angels. And I remember saying, you were the pretty light I saw. And they said, yes. And and they said, and they said, you need to go back. And I said, no, no, I don't want to. And they said, it's it's not your time. It's not your time. You need to go back. And they said, when it comes time, we will come back and get you when it is your time. And I made them promise that they won't forget because I was sure that they would forget. And they both promised, we won't forget. We will come back and get you. And then I guess my spirit came back into my body. Suddenly my lungs were burning. I, I was choking on my own tongue, but I didn't know what it was. And I, I made it back to the house. I knew I could not go in and tell my parents because I would be beat and that it would be my fault. But we had a um, tree house in the back of our yard. And I remember I had to pull myself up the ladder because my clothes and hair were wet. And I remember curling up in the tree house and falling asleep and hoping that I would be dry enough so that so that I wouldn't be questioned as to what happened. Um, I, I, I'd like to talk some about, about different things that, that the enemy can do. Well, before you go there, I'm going to ask you the same question that everyone's thinking. By the time you see these angels at age nine, 
and they are you know working to keep you alive is there a part of you that is even questioning if they are serving the right god and if jesus is actually in your corner because he's sending you back into this world or was it more of a refreshing time where it's like i know that there's a whole kingdom fighting for me on the other side of the veil how were you processing this well at at the time i only had memories of jesus and the angels helping me at the time that it was happening the next morning when i woke up i didn't have those conscious memories but at at the time that they were that I could see them. Um, I I was very relieved. I was mm. I was at, at peace. They were the only things that I had that seemed to care about me in this world. And I I had much much anger growing up that I didn't know I didn't know why. And I think a lot of my anger at the time was towards God for not me and then when i started really uh reading and studying all of the curses that were were brought upon me and as as god being a fair judge he he can't go against those things and so when the enemy has a legal right to attack somebody the lord even though I believe it causes him great pain, mm. he, he can't come in and just stop it and mm. say, and say um, no, all of this is stopping because, because the enemy has legal rights. I believe he does set, set perimeters on things. He didn't have to come and revive me, but he did. And there... There have been multiple times where I have had a horrific memory of something like that. And then, and then the Lord, he would take me to heaven. And in heaven on the floor, I call it a portal window. It's, a, it's just a round golden window on the floor. Uh, and, and he would show me what happened through that vantage point so that I believe so that it was separating me from having to relive the trauma memories again. It was almost like something I was watching. And there there were many times where um, the Lord would actually take me back through a memory and he would show me where he was and where my angels were and how their swords were drawn and they were ready to cut the head off of the people who were tormenting me. They had the tip of their spear to their throats and they were waiting for the word from God. Mm. And, and the Lord would say, we, we can't, we don't, you know, she's been sold. Um, but, but they always, they always brought me back to life. Um, there are many, many freaky things that, that the enemy can do that I want to talk about because most people do not believe it. Um, there, there are portals 
all over the world. And I know many people are familiar with the story of Jacob's Ladder, and that was an angelic portal. Mm-hmm. Well, the enemy always likes to copy whatever the Lord does, and so there are many demonic portals all over the world. And I remember one time when I was being tortured, and I realized I could start sending my parts out. Some of these parts went to the second heaven to to these portals, and I found myself in different countries. So the enemy can take planes and people through portals where you can be in one spot and within a very short period of time, you can actually be clear across the world in a different country. And what person is going to end up believing you if you say, oh, yes, I was, you know, across the country this morning and now I'm back. And I believe the enemy's desire obviously is is to label all survivors as as liars. But um, I've seen the enemy take physical children and hide them inside of other people. The enemy did that with me. He, He hid three children inside of me. I have also seen with my eyes, I have seen demonic entities be summoned and, and they would come forward and they would take, take the bodies of those that they had killed and they would disappear into the earth. And I knew that if there were any people close by who professed to be Christians who lived close by, those bodies were deposited underneath that Christian's house because then their blood would be crying up. Their land would become defiled and it would bring curses and other things on their house. So there are many ways the enemy gets around things. Um, Now, let me um, ask this question before you go any further. You said that they had hidden three physical children inside of you. Can you walk us through that memory? Um, Because I know what you're talking about. And I was quite shocked when it came up. Uh, But people need to hear this. Yes. On, On one of the occasions when, when I had taken a baby boy, um, I called him Brian. I don't know. I don't know what his name was. He had dark hair. He was about nine months old. They were going to sacrifice him. And he was one of the children that I had stolen. And I had, I had run into the river with him. And we were caught. And he, he was taken. Well, I had remembered after that uh, memory that they actually let me hold him. And I was sitting on the ground. And I, And I had the child sitting on my lap and I was protecting him with my arms. And the cult surrounded me in a circle. And I remember them saying that they needed one more person in the circle. They started summoning this evil entity and I could look up in the tree and I could see this dark evil entity crouched in the tree, kind of like an animal. And they summoned him and he came down and he he kind of walked in a crab-like fashion 
and he came up, they had to complete the circle. This evil entity took the hands of the people next to him, and I could hear something lock into place. I knew that they could not pull their hands out, and it was causing great, great pain to them because they were crying out. They had talked to me and asked me if I wanted to hide children. And I said, yes. And they said, well, how would you like to hide them inside of you? I had no idea what that meant, but I agreed. All I knew was instantly the baby boy that I was holding and protecting disappeared. And I knew he was physically inside of me. They actually ended up doing that with two or three more children and they had talked amongst themselves that I was to be a courier and I knew one of the children was to go to Mexico and it seems like maybe the other one England I'm not sure I don't know how they expected me to get there but um, those children were actually inside of me I, I confess I do not understand it but I know that they were physically hidden inside of me through demonic power until, until you had, had prayed and the Lion of Judah came and took them out. Um, so this is just another one of those things where... I am continually humbled by the kinds of things, the work that I'm doing with survivors requires. Uh, there are so many things, folks, that I, I literally don't even have the guts to say on my own program yet. Um, because if I just say it, it almost seems like I am discrediting myself. But when you hear someone else say it, and there is a fruit of deliverance, then it's substantiated. And uh, this is true. Jesus came and he removed these children from Sharice. It was something that actually very very honestly occurred in the spirit world and he did not remove them back into the physical world he just took them out of her you could say quantumly and took them with him uh let me tell you something he said do not keep the little ones from me jesus is after the little ones he takes the babies he takes the children and he takes them with him and he is a father to them Thank you for sharing that, Cherise. In, in talking about that, the only time I have seen my Lord and Savior run is when I had a part that was being held captive under the earth, under the water, in some other place that was being held in a prison, even in prison cells in hell. And, and my Lord would run. And I knew that was for my benefit because I was so important to him. And once 
I had confessed, renounced, broken, whatever it was that was holding them in place. He did not want them there one second longer, one, one second longer of torment. And, and I know that he will do the same for other survivors. He will show himself mighty. He will run on their behalf to set them free. I, I wanted to um, talk about other things that, that the cult does that are, are just plain freaky. Absolutely. And um, when I was being tortured, there were many times where, well, well, let me back up and say most of the torture that, that they did, they, they try not to let it show. You know, it was under my clothes. It was, you know, puncturing my eardrums or other orifices. But there were times where I was cut deeply. And I remember one specific memory on, on my right forearm, they took a knife and they cut me deeply, deeply. They came to me with 13 small dried berries. There were, um, there were 12 blackberries and one red berry. I don't know what they were. They were very small dried ones. They told me I had to eat them. I ate them and they were very, very bitter. Then they brought out an herb. It almost kind of looked like a branch of a pine tree, but I don't know what it was, but I could see it had been used many times because it had dried blood in it. I don't know if it was demonically anointed or something, but I ate the berries and they would lay that herb on the wound. They wouldn't even even cover it, it would just come in contact with it and instantly it was healed. I have seen uh, wounds that completely healed, severe wounds that completely healed to where there wasn't even a scar. I've seen other wounds that healed to where there was a tiny scar that looked very old. I remember one time where they actually broke a young child's leg and they did the same thing. They, they have ways of healing these things. And I believe part of the reason that they do this is, is so you go through the pain, the torture, the trauma of everything that that involves. But if it is healed, if you happen to remember and tell somebody, they're going to say, well, show me the scar. You're going to have a huge scar and there's nothing there. Or if you do remember and you go to look for it and it's not there, you think, oh, maybe that's not a real memory. And that is diabolical. That is, that is a lie. That is what the enemy does to cause us to actually doubt our own memories and to doubt the truth. And so um, I, I know that there's many other survivors out there that have been through horrific things. And I'm just saying, if you don't have the scars to prove it, the memory still stands. And um, um, I, know, I know, Dan, you, you had talked about other ways in which other survivors had spoke that um, they were here. Yes, 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 yes. Well, your point that the cults will hide the um, the damage from the ritual and torture uh, is absolutely valid. This is what they do. And it's plausible deniability. It's a reinforcement on the program, right to remain silent, you know. Uh, 
remember to forget um, all of that. Uh, also to blame the survivor, right? Because you're making all of these accusations that these people, which we call upstanding, are really criminals. Well, you're just saying stuff. Where's your proof? It's certain, surely, if they had done this to you, we'd see it on your body. And because they're talking to uh, primitive minds, <laughs> um, working underneath the umbrella of a false reality overlay, it, 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 it sails. People believe it. They bite the bait. Survivors, they bite the bait. But what has been reported to me includes what I would call alien technologies. Uh, these come from groups in the heavens. Uh, they, they sometimes have a base on planet Earth, sometimes not. Sometimes they're working off planet. They have craft. They have technologies. And they use have turned some of these over for certain rituals purposes and to certain groups. And so when they are doing things to a body, they are able to use these technologies to heal the wounds. Um, I mean, to the extent that they could burn somebody alive and recompose the body with the technologies. And so that has been reported to me. Uh, there are also uh I read a book by a a witch doctor. It's actually called Snatched from Satan's Claws. And for a long time, you couldn't find it anywhere. More recently, it's become available on Amazon again as an ebook. But um, this guy, his father was a, a witch doctor, and he was raised to a witch doctor. It was out of, um, I think, uh, Zaire. And... Uh, he, he one time he, he took a, a a metal pole, he writes, and stabbed himself in the eye because he thought that he would just be able to pull it out with his witchcraft powers by the time he was like nine. But it didn't work. And so he realized that he actually had a metal pole inside of his eye and he had just really hurt himself bad. Uh, so his sorcerer dad came out and laughed. And so he pulled the pole out of his eye. And of course, now his eye is completely damaged. So according to his memory, his dad took the eye ball out of the socket physically with his hand, um, took the wound off of the eyeball, put it on his leg and put the eyeball back. This is all witchcraft power. But this is African bush witchcraft. And yes puts the eyeball back in the eye socket. Now the eye's working, but the pain of being stabbed with an iron rod through the body is now in the leg. So then after this, the dad spits on the leg, spits. Um, and then the wound closes up and he transferred that wound to one of his client's bodies. So suddenly a person that's going to them as a witch doctor just gets this dramatic pain somewhere in their body. And of course they probably would, you know, go back to some other witch doctor to try to get the pain dealt with by paying money and they do their witchcraft. So, so, so this, like, there are so many strategies that the kingdom of darkness and they're documented. I mean, folks, this is documentation. She, Sharice is giving you her actual valid memories here out of the mouths of two or three witnesses. Let all things be established. This is done. It is fact. And there are many ways that it is accomplished. Okay. Yes. 
Yes. Well, um, I, I wanted to um, share a, a few memories I had about being buried alive. Um, I, I remember one ceremony uh, out in the woods where, where they had taken a newborn baby from a girl being sex trafficked. And they had a fire. They held the newborn baby by its foot over the fire and the flames were touching the top of the baby's head. And at that point, I, I broke away. I ran up and I grabbed the baby. And it was another time that I ran with it. I, I was trying to find a place in my young mind. I was thinking if I could hide it under leaves or something, maybe you know somebody will find it or I can come back later and get it. But anyway, um, as, as retribution for doing that, they um, took me one night and it, and it was only three men in the car and myself. And they had actually took me to a neighboring city, which was about 25 minutes away. And there was a river there. And we went down in the brush and the trees. And on the side of the river, they, they dug up a coffin. It was a black coffin. They opened it. And inside was a half decomposed body. I could see skull and teeth on one side, but there was a lot of flesh on the other side. And they shoved me in the coffin on top of the body. And I could hear dirt hitting it. And they told me that they were burying me alive. And I remember fighting and fighting. And I remember the overwhelming odor that smelled sweet. It was a sweet decomposing odor. And I would, I would try to beat with my hands on the coffin lid. I, I don't know how long I was in there. I remember things crawling on me when I was in there. But they left me in there until I believe my spirit broke and I stopped fighting. And that was another time when I realized I could send many parts of me out because I wouldn't just shatter into a couple pieces. I would break into hundreds of thousands upon millions of pieces. And I would start sending parts of me out so that, so that they, they would be free. Dug me up. Um, another time, I, I was in a building. I believe it was the Masonic Lodge. This, this actually happened two times in this building. One time, they had a black coffin in there. They were punishing me. The coffin, they opened it up. It had live snakes, live rats, and uh, spiders in it. And they sealed me in it for a couple of hours. And then another time, they had actually taken me and drugged me so that I was asleep. And they placed me in the coffin when I was asleep. And it was full of rats. And they were biting me. They were scratching me. And so I, I woke up and it was dark and I was in there with all these rats. And I remember fighting and um, beating with my hands until I had broken blood vessels all along the sides of my hands and my throat was hoarse. And for many, many years after that, I would try to sleep. And in my sleep, I would feel rats under the sheets and I would try to smash them with my hand and hold them in place. 
that that uh, went on for a number of years. Um, I. After I was sold, the men that I was sold to would often sell me to other people. And uh, at that time, I, I was getting a little older. I started babysitting when I was age eight. And, um, and when I was a little bit older, I, I would babysit overnight or over weekend if the family was going to go somewhere. Well, I remember uh, this one family that had Called, called my parents and they had arranged for me to babysit. And um, at that time I, I was older. Um, I, I think I was probably 10 or 12. They came and picked me up and took me to their house. I had no reason to believe I wasn't going to babysit. They asked me to wait in their living room. I looked on the floor, you know, and there were toys and, and things of that nature. And the couple was gone for a long time and I started getting really suspicious and they finally called to me from one of the back rooms and they said okay you can come on back and so I I walked in into what I thought was a nursery I saw the white toy box uh, toys on the floor but the uh, wife had changed into a black dress and she had a black veil over her head and the husband had on a black robe with the black hood and um, I, I was very, very fearful. They had a crib up against the wall, and I, I said, where are the children? And she said, look in the crib. I looked in the crib, and there was an old vinyl doll that its head had been split in half, been cut with a knife. And I just remember standing there staring at it, and I couldn't even comprehend what they were doing. I turned around, and um, they had programmed me with with flashing lights and they had a strobe light and uh, it started flashing. And my next memory was sitting in my driveway and they said, this is what you did tonight. These are our children's ages. And I got out of the car and I, I babysat them for years and they had no children. Um, each time I would go, I would fully expect to find children, and um, that that was one way that they got a hold of me so that they could have me for longer periods of time. I actually started babysitting for about half a dozen different different families. Um, I I know on um, on one occasion when I was in um, junior high, one of the coaches. At the, at the school, I would babysit for him and his children, and he actually had several children. Um, he would leave coded messages inside of my locker, and they would say things like TikTok, picking you up at such and such time, wear red, and all of those things were were um, codes. Well, on this one occasion, they had instructed me after school that I was not to ride the bus home, but I was to walk down the street. I remember I was in a complete trance. I remembered I had to go down so many streets and there were so many houses down. And 
I went into this house and there were four other people in there and they were smoking marijuana and I couldn't understand what was going on because I, I, I couldn't find any children. They had me sit on a chair in the middle of the room. They started pulling out hair. They would um, stick, stick pins under all of my fingernails and all of my toenails. They would puncture my eardrums. They would, they would do uh, many, many other heinous things to me. And, and they had a closet there off of their living room. And after they had abused me for hours, I was stripped naked and I was thrown in the closet. I was in that closet for 24 hours. And um, I remember I sat there naked, holding on to my knees and crying. And she uh, made sure and, and told me one of the women there that, I was not allowed to go to the bathroom in there. And I, I had to go to the bathroom so bad. When she opened up the door and let me out, I lost control of my bladder. She hit me hard and I fell over backwards and hit my head. And then she went and got rags and I had to, to clean up all of the urine. Um, I, I remember also Joseph Mangala. Um, one of the places that, that they would often take me to was the basement of the hospital or medical facilities because they would often, they would often shock me, start and stop my heart. Um, on, on this one occasion, I remember I, I don't know, 12 or 13, and, and they were um, electrocuting me. They, they had wires and they would put them all over me cause massive blisters. Joseph Mengele by that time was an old man. And I had no idea at the time that he was so deceptive. I believe the whole thing was planned for my behalf, although I, I, I didn't realize that at the time. But, um, but Joseph Mengele saw them torturing me and he commanded them to stop and they stopped. He said, this is my child and I love her. You will not hurt her. And my heart just, I was so happy because this was the first time someone, someone had ever really stopped, stopped that torture. And, and he intentionally spoke very, very gently to me. He got me to completely trust him. I would have done anything for him at that time because he was my only savior at that point. It was later that he started turning and um, torturing me and raping me. And I actually became um, pregnant with his child. And um, when I was about five to six months pregnant, I was taken to a medical facility. And there was a room with about six other very young girls there that they, they were all forcing early labor. And I remember there was a nurse there and she was dressed in a nurse's outfit and she had taken me to a room. They had stripped me naked. And then they had brought me back to this group room. And all I remember thinking was, I, I just wish I was alone. I'm in so much pain. I, I just wish I was alone. And my um, mother and father were actually present at this time. I believe my mother was in a trance-like state because um, my situation was a little more unusual than, 
then a lot of families of satanic ritual abuse where both of the parents are deeply involved in it. My mother was not, but she was a victim of programming. And so the more I would cry out in pain, the more my mom would laugh. But um, it was such of a big thing for me to be having Joseph Mengele as baby. And I remember Joseph Mengele telling me, he said, my name is spelled with an F. That was very important to him. So I always had to remember his name was not Joseph P.H., but it was with an F. And when it came time for me to have his um, child, they put some type of recording device, spiritual recording device on me. I, I couldn't see it. But they said, Joseph's not here and he wants to watch his child being born. And so I don't understand it, but it was some type of spiritual camera, some type of recording device in the spirit that he could watch everything. And I remember um, it was a boy and they, they took him. Um, I'm assuming that they killed him. I, I don't know if, if they gave him to, to someone or not, but um, that, that was a very, very big thing to have, have Joseph Mingle's child. And I, um, out, of, out of defiance for Joseph Mingle, I named the child Israel Abraham. Um, I, I named all of my children. Um, another memory I, I have when I was in the ninth grade and I was actually pregnant because um, I remember the school nurse coming to me. I, I was nauseated. I was vomiting. The school nurse asked me to come to the office in junior high. She put her hand on my stomach. She said, is your father hurting you? And of course, I had no memory of ever even being with a man, so I couldn't comprehend what she was saying. She said, you, I think you're about five months pregnant. And I said, I said, no, that's, that's not possible. Well, um, they, they had called my mother, and my mother said, said no, you're just constipated. Well, anyway, it was about that time that I went to school and there was a note in my locker that um, it gave me a date and a time and it said, wear red. And one of the men that I babysit for um, said uh, he needed me to babysit on a Sunday night and he would take me, drop me off at junior high the next Monday morning. He came and picked me up on a Sunday night. Instead of driving me to his house, he took me to a nearby town to a motel and I walked in the room and there were two other young girls, probably younger than, than, than myself, already in the room and they were drugged in, in a trance-like state. He drugged each of us, poured alcohol down our throat, stripped us naked. I remember there were two beds in the room in the large bathroom, he stripped me naked, put me on one of the beds closest to the door on top of the bedspread. The other young girl, she had brown hair. She was placed on the bed next to me. The youngest girl who had blonde hair, she was uh, laid on the bathroom floor. And 
I had no idea what was going to happen, but I was still very, very modest. And whatever they drugged me with, I, I couldn't move. I couldn't lift my arms and my legs. I could hardly lift my head. I remember I could reach the edge of the edge of the comforter that I was laying on, and I tried to pull it up to cover me because I was so embarrassed. This man, the coach, came and he put hideous makeup all over us to make us look like prostitutes. Pretty soon, um, three large black men came in and they said, knock, knock, and they all laughed. Our coach told us that uh, there was a professional basketball team coming through town and they had requested girls. And so he was selling us to this basketball team. So all night long, these incredibly large black men came in and they uh, raped us. I remember at uh, one point I, I was crying, I, I was vomiting, I would have to turn my head and vomit. And I remember I was able to get one of my hands up and I scratched him on his chest. He choked me with his hands until I passed out. And this, this went on all night long. And the young girl next to me was so scared. And I don't, I don't want to be graphic, but she wasn't able to separate her, her legs. And so the coach went and he put his foot on the edge of her hip, grabbed her leg, and he pulled it out of socket so that there would be more room. She had passed out, she was screaming. All I could do was just look over her, at her and cry. This went on all night. The next morning, the coach came in and he said, get up and get dressed. Well, he had stripped off our clothes, thrown them on the floor all night long. People had been walking across our clothes. And I remember sitting on the edge of the bed and, and my head was spinning grabbing my clothes and trying to smooth them out as lovingly as I could because at that time they were my only friends. And I walked in the bathroom and it was, it was horrible uh, blood that that poor girl was laying in. We were all forced to get dressed. He um, took us out to the car very, very early in the morning and that the dark haired girl had to suffer having her leg put back in socket and then she had to walk in the parking lot and and we were literally tripping and falling as we were walking to the car and I remember I remember there was a bus stop and I remember that there was this elderly Hispanic woman she was standing by the bus stop and our our eyes met and I remember I was trying to scream with my eyes and say rescue me, take me away, take me home. I don't care who you are, take me home. And uh, she had, had, had looked at me and I could tell she knew something was uh, wrong. I mean, we had vomit in our hair, uh, we were a mess. And we were shoved in the car like a bunch of trash. And I remember as we pulled out of the parking lot, I turned and I tried to watch her as long as I could. 
But anyway, we were taken back to our junior high. Uh, we were there about three hours early. It was very cold outside. We were not properly dressed. One of the young girls was in the bushes vomiting. There was a bench outside. I curled up and fell asleep. And when all the buses came and the school opened, we went inside and I tried washing the vomit out of my hair. I tried pulling my sweatshirt up because I had bruises all over my neck. And we had to go to school like nothing was wrong. Oh my gosh. Charisse, um, I did have one question. Yes. Regarding Mangala's baby, how old do you perceive that you were at that time? I think I was probably about 13. Folks, um, this is real life. You know, I don't know how else to say it. Um, I am personally sick and tired of the false reality overlay. Uh, the dismissiveness that comes along with a referential point that is false. Uh, too many people are going to, you know, get to the end of a story like this and say, meh, I don't believe it, or eh, it's just one in a million, or, you know, uh, it's such a, a dismissal and a desire to dismiss because, and I've found this to be the case for, for a lot of people. Uh, people don't want to think through problems they don't already have a solution for. They, they don't want to solve something that isn't already being solved. And um, frankly, we as the body of Christ have been trained to dissociate from the battlefield. Just pretend like it's not there. As a matter of fact, I can count a whole bunch of churches that'll tell you demons aren't even real, and Satan is just a theme. <laughs> it's just a uh, a, a metaphor. Um, I am sick and tired of the false reality overlay, and, and, and one of the reasons why I so appreciate you, Sharice, is that you shatter that with a massive, massive hammer. And the body of Christ needs it. We need it. We need you. And I appreciate you. And uh, with that said, did you have any closing thoughts before we conclude this program? Not, not that I could think of unless you have anything else. <laughs> well, uh, Folks, let me, let me tell you something. Uh, there is a whole lot more to be said, and we're going to keep saying it. So, again, thank you. Um, we'll look forward to more from you in the future. And until next time, God bless and Godspeed. speed. 
You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. This podcast is a production of Bride Ministries International. Visit our website at brideministriesinternational.com to enjoy the Bride Ministries Church, the Bride Ministries Institute, free resources, and to support us financially.